Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast from the Impact Collaboratory. Today, uh, we'll be introducing uh, Jason Carlowish, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in uh, ethics and a physician, uh, geriatrician, who just gave a wonderful uh, grand rounds on the ethics of doing pragmatic trials in the for populations of people uh, living with dementia. And um, uh, Jason, uh, do you want to uh, try to summarize briefly the uh, content and we'll, uh, I have a couple of questions from uh, willing and interested pa participants. Yes, yeah, so I spoke about the um, criteria that allow an investigator to put together a human subjects protection plan that um, waives or otherwise modifies the routine human subjects protection of written informed consent from the subject of the research. And I think the overall theme of my talk was to note how uh, intimately interdigitated are the aspects of what makes a embedded pragmatic clinical trial and an EPCT and how that interdigitates needs to be thought about as one looks through the five requirements that allow an investigator to waive written informed consent. And so the message was early in the course of designing one's study to be thinking of that human subjects protection and whether it's going to be necessary or not um, as one's making design decisions around eligibility, recruitment, delivery of the intervention, et cetera. Great. So um, as I recall, there were some really wonderful examples that you, uh, that you used because those are examples from the <clears throat> group of uh, people who were making applications to get pilot projects from our impact collaboratory. And uh, one raised a, a number of questions related to uh, the, um, the use of a sort of tunable uh, lighting fixtures in uh, nursing home or other institutional care settings, uh, either in the individual's uh, individual residents living with dementia, their individual uh, home, their, their room, or in the common areas in the hallway. And um, you made an interesting distinction between under what circumstances things could be pragmatic and practical between those two settings with regard to this issue of waiver of consent. You want to comment on that? Sure. Yeah. No. Um, in general, of course, there's nothing, you know, no case, no ethics is kind of an expression, namely, you know, um, it's all very well to right. talk about things in sort of conceptual ways. And, and certainly that's one um, exercise that's very important in philosophy. But once one gets into the matter of ethics, you really need sort of a story, a case to kind of, because um, that's what ethics is about. And so we were really pleased as the core to early on in the pilot process, engage with a couple of pilot applicants who had questions about um, human subjects protections. And you're right, there were two pilots that emerged as, you know, presenting very interesting um, uh, topics. And one of them in particular was this study that proposed to uh, test a method of manipulating the light in, an, uh, in a nursing home setting in an effort to see if it would have an effect upon patients' mood and, and, and behavior, residents' mood and behavior. 
And you're, you're right. It became a very interesting study in a number of questions, case study, first of which was, you know, um, uh, uh, who are the human subjects? And we did agree that, you know, that certainly the residents of the nursing home are subjects of this research because identifiable information will be gathered from them, which is, of course, the definition of a human subject. Um, and then we kind of perceived that there are actually two different kinds of subjects. Namely, there were residents who um, were going to be in common areas getting exposed to light, um, but also some residents were going to have light um, uh, manipulations performed in their rooms as well. And we, we kind of reasoned that really those who had both light in the common area and light in their rooms manipulated were facing a different set of research procedures and risks and benefits than those who were only getting light manipulated in their common area. And so we sort of had to walk through the assessment of waivers and modifications of written informed consent separately for each of those subject groups. What kind of decisions or what kind of uh, advice would you give the investigator with respect to those two kinds of conditions? Yeah, well, if we focus on the subjects that are having light um, manipulated in just the common area, you know, we began to reflect that, um, you know, a common area is, 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 is just that. It's, it's a space that sort of the, 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 the polis controls, the city, if you will, the city-state, you know. Um, in this case, in the nursing home, it's the, it's the, it's the owners, the, the directors uh, of, the, of the nursing home. And, you know, certainly things could be done in that space by those owners that the residents would should have a say in. And in, arguably in the governance of a nursing home, you'd you know, want to think about how if you're making changes to the facility uh, in that space, you know, you would engage the residents and their families and other representatives to kind of talk about what you were doing. Um, but we couldn't see. Uh, that one should have veto power over what happens in that space, um, that it, it, it's a public space. And so what goes on in that space is something that just informed consent wouldn't be um, relevant. And so we, we felt that just, you know, it wasn't a question of whether it could be practicably obtained. It was a question that it just isn't doesn't need to be obtained um, if the manipulation is only in the public space. And, and again, I've sort of caveated that. I mean, you could imagine manipulations done in the public space where, boy, you really ought to have asked the residents if this was okay. But but in principle, yeah. the starting position is, you know, renovations to the public space are the charge of those who are in charge of taking care of the public space, whether that's for research purposes right. or not. Right. But when you start thinking about the residents who are have their rooms manipulated, you know, it's a very different space. Yes, a nursing home, people come in and out of your room all the time. You wish they would knock, you know, at least and say hi, introduce themselves and ask permission. Um, and yet it is a room. I mean, it is where someone is living, you know, um, symbolized by things like, um, you know, they have items from their prior residence oftentimes there, furniture and other decorative items. Um, and we felt it was very important from a kind of rights and, and, and welfare perspective, which is one of the five criteria that, the, that any modification of informed consent shouldn't affect rights and welfare. We felt that from a rights and welfare perspective, you know, the default ought to be that, you know, if I'm going to do things to your room for research purposes, I ought to get your permission first or at least let you know what's happening. Um, and secondly, you know, we couldn't see an argument from a practicality standpoint that it was impractical to get consent um, from residents 
uh, in their rooms. I mean, just walk in the room and ask them at the same time you're going to put the bulb in or whatever right. else, the intervention. So it struck us that, that one protocol had two very different kind of human subjects protections, depending on whether you were a resident in the common area only exposed to the intervention or you were a resident in a room and also in a common area. So that's great. So just uh, complicate a little bit further. What if it's a double room as opposed to a single room or, or something like that? I mean, how, you just ask both people and if they disagree. Well, if they disagree, you've got a problem, um, you know, but uh, welcome, <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to the world of the ironically named semi-private room, you know. Um, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I know I would think that um, you would want to ask both because they're both going to be subject to the intervention. Okay, so um, we have one more is uh, how do you think about the trade-offs between the practicality of obtaining consent in a nursing home population with, that has advanced dementia and equity? Uh, you know, because we, there are sometimes disparities into who's willing, to, um, who's willing to say yes and also in terms of their racial and ethnic background and their cultural background and also the likelihood that those individuals might have... Um, a, a legally authorized representative. Um, how do you sort of deal with that? It's because otherwise a consent requirement might end up with a, a bias in the who's represented in the studies and we want to make sure we have other people's perspective as well. Yeah, there's a couple of ways to enter into the conversation about this topic. And I'll start with one that really impressed me, which was the idea that there are residents in nursing homes for whom there is no one to serve in the role of a representative or advocate for that person. Um, that struck me as notable, meaning, you know, never mind research decisions. Well, then how are clinical decisions made for that individual? Um, and, you know, there's one dictum of research ethics, which is, you know, clinical care before research. And this almost struck me as I reflected upon it as an example of how, in the course of clinical research, particularly a pragmatic trial where you're really trying to, you know, noodle into and otherwise kind of deliver clinical care, what you do when you discover, and I'll use a strong word here, bad clinical care or suboptimal clinical care or problematic clinical care. And, you know, I'm not saying that residents of long-term care facilities who don't have any legally authorized representative are receiving bad care, but I am saying that from the perspective of you know, caring for an individual with cognitive impairment, the inability to have anyone who can speak for them or advocate for them ought to be viewed as someone who um, is at risk because who's going to advocate for them? And so I'm sort of not directly addressing your question um, because what I'm saying is, is that the absence of a legal or authorized representative ought to raise concerns that have nothing to do with the ability to do research, but how would you deliver care? Now, having made that observation, which isn't very helpful for the researcher, what about in the conduct of research? And, you know, so let's assume the intervention's not no more than minimal risk. I think we come up with some interesting points, which is the inability to get informed consent from people because they don't, they can't give consent and they lack a legally authorized representative. The practicality problem is not on the basis of the impracticality of getting informed consent. It's based on that the requirement for informed consent would make the research impractical, not informed consent impractical. So then what you're left with is, right. well, in what way would not getting consent from people who lack LARs 
make the research impractical. And you say, well, the folks without LARs are going to be a particular kind of subject population that are going to differ from the overall subject population in ways that would lead to a biased or otherwise non-generalizable sample. And so you begin to enter into a, a conclusion that maybe informed consent would be impracticable. And yet, if you then look at the rights and welfare criteria, what you're basically saying is, I'm not going to get informed consent from people who don't have anyone else to fend or help them. You could argue that that might run up against the idea that your waiver and modification shouldn't offend or otherwise disrupt the rights and welfare of the individual. And I, that's where I might have a real problem where, you know, how much the practicality yeah. standard, I'm trying to balance it against the rights and welfare, but I, I'd want people to help me understand how that doesn't violate their rights and welfare. That's the one that I think I get stuck on on that one. Well, that's actually a really good point. That's a great point. And um, with respect to pragmatic trials, this is sort of the last question because it, it's a direct derivative of this. If we... Uh, the efficacy studies, the phase three studies, clearly show that the intervention actually works when a researcher does it. And so the real question in the pragmatic trial is absolutely only a matter of can it be generalized and sustained when the healthcare system staff do it. Does that alter the, uh, the one's priors regarding um, uh, the, the ethics or the, the the in, implied good that would be provided as a function of the intervention, because it's not, it's no longer thought to be at, at risky at all. In fact, by not doing it, you might be depriving somebody. Well, it's, it's not a research risk, I think is the important issue. I mean, remember all the rules okay. around human subject protection apply to the risks of research procedures. So for example, suppose yeah. as a matter of clinical care, I'm getting, you know, genetically engineered T cells to hoover up a tumor, you know, and you want to study the effect of that on my cytokines or something. Well, the risks of genetically yep. engineered T cells uh, are not, are risky. That Oh, they are. Those are not research risks and they're not part of the research informed consent. What's part of the research informed consent are the extra tubes of blood you're going to draw to look at my cytokines. And so Back to that was a bad example. It was totally biomedical, but it was a vivid example, which is if you're delivering a clinical intervention that's proven to work and you're delivering it like the way the clinician delivers it, I would say I don't see the research there on that particular procedure. So whatever its risks and benefits are, they may need clinical informed consent, maybe even written because it's a whatever, but that's not part of the minimal risk calculation because minimal risk uh, okay. applies to research procedures. Like let's say you were throwing in a bunch of extra assessments or you were going to have an RA spend 30 minutes debriefing the person. Well, then that's a research procedure. And what are the risks of an RA spending 30 minutes talking to me about how I felt after I got whatever the intervention was? The consent would need to be around that issue. So would you agree with the statement that the more pragmatic the trial and the more evidence-based it's... Um, it's it's rationale the um, not just the the greater the waiver of uh, uh, the greater the minimal risk is and the greater the waiver of consent is merited because all you're doing is actually gathering data from existing sources and then compiling that at the end so you do use identifiable data but you don't you're not collecting any additional data yeah I mean the more what you're doing is exactly like or resembles you know usual clinical care 
um, the more you're likely to find that when you run through the five criteria for waivers and modifications of informed consent that you're probably going to fulfill them. But I, I, I will stand firm on the point just because you call a study pragmatic clinical trial doesn't mean you can waive informed consent. You still have to look at the five criteria and walk through them. You're more likely to get past them if you're a five on all the pressy wheel criteria. In other words, extremely pragmatic, but that doesn't guarantee you're going to get a waiver. All right, great. Thank you so very much. Um, This was very helpful and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing it up on the podcast. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.